Welcome to 10MinuteTech.com. This is Ryan Weber at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and I'm excited to welcome today's guest. Hey everyone, my name is Philip Kiley, and I'm joining 10MinuteTech.com today. I am the author of Writing for Software Developers, which is a book about how to create technical content aimed at a general audience of programmers and other people who have skill in computing that they want to share with a broader audience. And today I'm really excited to talk about how to make awesome technical content, even if you're not super confident as a writer, or you feel that you maybe don't know how to take the steps needed to bring what you want to say into the world. In this interview, I'll talk with Philip about the advice in his book for technical professionals and technical writers to produce and market great content. I hope you enjoy the interview. Philip, thanks for joining us today. I'm glad to have you on the podcast to talk about your book. And I'm really interested in this because this book, it targets an audience that we often ignore which are technical professionals who want to write content for a wider audience and to market and sell that content. So can you talk a little bit about the audience that your book addresses? Yeah. When I was writing the book, I actually was very careful about the way that I described the thing that I'm teaching because I'm not really teaching technical writing. I have massive respect for technical writers who are able to produce entire volumes of documentation or talk about specific minutiae of a topic in a very comprehensive way, which is not something that I'm actually so good at, is this the skill of professional technical writing. What I am able to do, though, pretty well is write things that people like reading. That's what I focused on in the book is here is how you, as someone who's not a technical writing professional, but does have other skills, you're a good programmer, you have something worth teaching, here's how you can take that take some pretty basic writing tactics, and then produce some material that people are going to find really compelling and useful. Great. This audience that you identify is people who want to write like technical content for a wide audience. That's What, what kinds of things might they produce? I'm, I'm sure that some people who read my book really want to write. But what I'm sure of is that everyone who reads my book wants to have written. And that's a pretty important distinction that comes up in my own mind as well. I'm much more, I'm a much bigger fan of having written something than I am of writing it. <laughs> sure, yes. Now, the reason that's important is because if you get lost in the writing process or the writing process isn't enjoyable because you haven't been trained in it, then you never get to the state of having written. And so the sort of things that people are trying to write are things that they want to have written, they want to have exist in the world that don't already exist in the world. And that's why they have to be the one to create it. So it can be anything from documenting a how to use a open source project that you wrote yourself or that you're contributing to, or if you have a cool tip with a favorite technology that you want to share with the world. The thing is, programmers often overestimate how much other programmers know. But if you've been working at the intersection of a couple technologies and maybe a business use case or a couple technologies and a user experience, then you are probably one of the few people in the world who spent the most time thinking about that very narrow specific thing. And so if you write that down, then the next person to come along who tries to do that same thing you're doing or a similar thing that builds on it is going to be 
five steps ahead because they're able to retrace your exact steps because you documented them. Perfect. So your audience is people, so you mentioned technical writers earlier. Your audience is people who are technical but probably don't think of themselves as writers and who honestly might not enjoy it that much, the actual writing part of things. Well, I hope they enjoy it. I think that writing can be a lot of fun. It's just, you know, it's work. And like all work, sometimes it's enjoyable, sometimes it isn't. I think that my my audience tends to be people who are more confident in programming, although I've been surprised. I uh, I sell my book through Gumroad, so I see, you know, the, the email of the people who are buying it. And sometimes I see people who I recognize buying the book, and I think, hang on a second, that person's already great at this. What do they need my book for? But... I think that what really matters is that people want to get better at it. There's really only one way to do that, which is structured practice. So you say, you know, writing is work. Um, it's sometimes enjoyable, sometimes it's not. But your book really, it does delve into the writing process to an extent. Can you break down kind of what you think is an effective approach, this sort of structured practice or this approach to writing, what tips do you give? Yeah, it's really hard to teach writing, to be honest. And there's a reason that if you pick up any writing book in the world and you flip through it, if it's, if it's you know, if it's strunk in white elements of style sort of thing, then sure, the whole thing is going to be about style tips and here you already have written, here's how you modify it. If you pick up a book like mine or, and this is a unfair comparison to Stephen King's work on writing, but that was one of my inspirations in writing this book. Most of the book isn't about writing, because there's only so much you can say on the topic. Most of it is about everything that happens around the writing that can get in the way of it. That said, there's a few things that I talk about. Basically, to break down my process, first I write an outline based on my research, and then I talk about something called pylons, which is your code samples, your images, your concrete examples. These are really solid chunks of an idea that can be presented as sort of an atomic whole. You have these pylons and you arrange them in the order that the reader needs to absorb them. And then you bridge them with explanation and examples and discussion and references and, you know, just normal writing things like conjunctions and transitions and all that sort of stuff. And once once you've done that, you have your pylons, you have your bridges in between them, then, as I like to say, you can take your reader from their continent of existing knowledge to an island of new understanding across this bridge that you've built. And that's the rewarding process of writing is building this bridge, and then testing the bridge. Most of writing is really just editing. So you got to walk back and forth over the bridge a few times and if you uh, if you didn't build it right, well, maybe you're going to it's going to break under your feet and you're going to fall through into the ocean. So you got to you know fly back up there and fix it up a little bit. So for example, if you're explaining how a piece of code works, it's pretty hard to do that if you can't just show the actual piece of code. So you might take it if you have a program that's in five functions. You might take the five functions in the order that they're used in the program. You put them separately in the document. And then in between each of the functions, you have a few paragraphs explaining what's going on. And so you have the pylons, you have the bridges, you have the article. Great. And so you actually did a lot of interviews of sort of people who do writing um, as part of your book. Is that right? 
That is right. I did 11 expert interviews, and I actually recently added a 12th. It's not integrated into the main text. It's just the interview transcript. But I had the opportunity to talk to Professor Donald Knuth, so I felt that was just too important to not include in some way. Great, great. Give us a couple of highlights from these interviews. So what's important in an interview is figuring out how to ask questions that they haven't answered before. So sort of a meta skill that I picked up was realizing when the person's tone sort of goes flat and they give what sounds like a very prepared answer, I know I've messed up because in this case, I'm just having them repeat something that I could have found from my own research. Uh huh. They've already put that answer somewhere out in the world. Exactly, exactly. So I actually had a really good time in these interviews finding new questions to ask. And I think one of the things that really stuck with me that Patrick McKenzie said was about the sort of power and responsibility, you know, Spider-Man style. He did not phrase it that way. That, that, that's my phrasing. In technical communication, as he was referring to the Heartbleed bug. I'm not sure if uh, if listeners aren't familiar with it. The Heartbleed bug was in 2014. Uh, it was this exploit that gave a ton of sensitive information off of servers. It was a it was a really big security issue. There was a patch for it, fortunately, but everyone in the world needed to update their software right now to fix this thing. And what he was talking about, what Patrick was talking about, was how in the tech communication circles, one of the smartest things they did was name it Heartbleed. Because if if it was just, you know, given some vulnerability rating and sent around, then it would have been, you know, put into tickets and stuck at the back of GeoQs, and it would have taken, you know, six weeks to even get it on someone's calendar. And during that time, there, there could have been a massive security breach. But by communicating about it properly with a cool name and a website with a little logo of a bleeding heart and whatever, there was a ton of urgency in the industry because everyone had this shared language to communicate about this issue with. And they had this slick looking website to show whoever was in charge of allocating engineering time that we got to allocate our best engineer to this right now. And that definitely saved a lot of data. Those are the sort of stories that, you know, in 2014, I was 14 years old. So I had no idea what Heartbleed was or what was going on in the industry. So hearing those sorts of stories and learning about the history of the industry that I joined. That was one of my favorite parts of doing some of these interviews. That was That's cool. So in that sense, the most important lesson was getting people to care about this thing at all, right? So that then they would absorb the technical content. Exactly. That's something that everyone can do in the articles that you write or the, the books, the blog posts, whatever. Well, first off, you have to care. Like if you don't care, it's really hard to make someone else care. So if you find a way to care about something, then you can tell other people about it in a way that demonstrates that you care, and then they're naturally going to care more as well. When I was talking to Donald Knuth, you know, I personally don't have a huge interest in algorithms and data structures and math. I'm much more of a websites and, you know, just send the data back and forth to the database sort of guy. But... Hearing how much he cared about it, hearing how he thought of these algorithms and their outputs as a t kind of written art, 
really made me believe in the topic and believe that the topic is important in a way that clearly his investment in this topic has helped shape the entire field over the past 50 plus years because his books have so much passion in them. They're able to take something that for many people such as myself is kind of dry boring mathematics and turn it into something that feels like an enlightening experience to learn about. So yeah, just just communicating that is another thing that I learned how to do from these interviews is is communicate how much you care about certain things. Fantastic. And then something I want to talk about before I let you go is, you know, your book is you compare it in a way to like the writer's market and everything and that you talk about the business of writing. And that's really not something that we talk about in techcom that much other than, you know, how to get a techcom job or say what rates to charge for freelance editing or whatever. Can you tell us a little more about kind of how you approach the business of producing technical content? Of course. So great content is valuable. People, first off, pay with, for it with their time. If you think about an experienced engineer, they could be making 100 200 300 even more dollars per hour, right? So if they're taking time out of their, oftentimes time out of their workday to read something that you've written, well, they're making a pretty big investment in your content. And so when you have that as the baseline, then the rates that technical communicators can charge start to make a lot of sense because not only is something that you're writing going to be read by one of these highly experienced engineers, if it's something really good, it's going to be read by a lot of them, read by a lot of junior engineers, read by a lot of people who want to become engineers. So as a technical writer, you can save people a lot of time, first off, just with your ability to explain things and collect research so that people don't have to reproduce the effort that you took to create the content. So I think that when you start to think about the value of technical content, from there, you can extrapolate all of the business side. So you can think about, okay, I have this valuable thing. Now, who's going to pay me for it? Well, these publications, they can have advertisers and sponsors, and so they need traffic, and so they will pay me for it. Or these companies, they want people to be familiar with their APIs and developer tool offerings, so they'll pay me for it. Overall, there's just a lot of different ways to monetize technical content, either through having it be content marketing or through having it be some sort of sponsored advertised thing or whatever. And then also, you know, sometimes if someone finds something particularly valuable, they'll be willing to just pay for it themselves, which is a very underrated way of monetizing, by the way, is to just have your audience pay you directly. I'm a pretty big fan of that model. Right, for the information. And that's the model you're going with yourself. Yeah, right, is having people pay for the content that they value. Exactly, exactly. So yes, you can go buy the book. Uh, it is available right now. Uh, not not you in particular, but the audience. <laughs> but anyway, the business side really does just come from, it's, it's the same as any business. You have the ability to create something of value. And so you're able to price that service or price the result of that service according to market conditions. And follow all of the same practices and principles that exist in every other market for professional services or the results of said services. I think the hardest part is just realizing that it isn't special. It's just, it's exactly the same. 
And then the other part is realizing that a lot of people's perceptions of technical content might be skewed by the market for things like fiction or creative nonfiction, poetry, a lot of really awesome stuff that has very poor monetization potential. So this is different than trying to sell your short story or whatever, which is is a valuable thing. But and it seems like part of what you're saying is that while creative writing deserves monetization, there's may not be quite as many people competing for some of the same Mark, you know, if you're talking about these writers who have some very specialized knowledge, there just might not be as many people producing that specific content. Exactly. There's a supply and demand problem in technical content, which is that the the demand from people who are learning how to program or learning a new skill within programming far outstrips the supply of really high quality material to help them learn that. So compared to, for example, the market for short fiction, where lots and lots of people write wonderful short stories that there aren't enough interested readers to support all of. In technical content, it's the other way around. That's why I was able to get started in it so quickly. And that's why I felt that it would be important to teach more people how to do it because there's room for all of us and many, many more in this market. Great, great. Can you give us the name of the book again, Philip? Yes, the book is Writing for Software Developers, and it's available today at philipkiley.com slash WFSD. All right, great. I believe you told me this was a pandemic project. Is that right? It is, yes. I Well, I started it back in November 2019. But I finished it, I was trying to get it finished before I graduated from college. And I was able to finish it six days before graduating. Uh, It was May 12th. And during the last two months of working on the book, I was at home, you know, in lockdown, and basically just sitting there in my pajamas at my computer from dawn till dusk every day, just writing and writing and writing. Well, good for you for getting it done. Congratulations on the book. And I really enjoyed talking to you about it. I really enjoyed talking to you too. I hope this is uh, useful for your audience and that people are able to take it and make something cool with it.